You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. Uh, in this episode, I interview Captain John McMurray and Tony Friedrich from the American Saltwater Guides Association. And if you've been following the podcast at all, um, you'll hear me refer to what I call the three P's. And um, that is environmental threats to our fisheries. And to simplify it, um, I call it the three P's, which is population, policy, and pollution. So example of how population affects our fisheries, um, overfishing, right? Uh, so our fishery stock, uh, example how policy affects our fisheries, there's uh, a number of ways that it does that. In this episode, we sort of dive into the Magnuson-Stevens Act. And then there's also a number of ways that pollution um, can affect our fisheries from uh, wastewater to plastic. And in this instance, uh, we talk about how uh, pollution in the form of greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change and how that's changing uh, the migratory patterns of fish and uh, what that means at the state level. So um, I really learned a lot from John and Tony. Um, appreciate everything that American Saltwater Guides Association is doing and, and representing uh, anglers' voices such as mine that um, believe in uh, conservation and protecting our, our our natural resources such as our fisheries uh, for future generations. So uh, special thanks to John and Tony and hope you enjoy. This episode of the Sustainable Angler Podcast is brought to you by Turn of Flats. Belize's premier saltwater fishing, scuba diving, and marine ecotourism destination. Turn of Flats is a charter member of 1% for the Planet, is Green Globe certified, and recently has installed a state-of-the-art off-grid renewable energy system to meet 80% of its energy needs and significantly reduce their carbon footprint. Visit www.tflats.com to book your next fly fishing adventure and sleep well knowing you're supporting a lodge that puts sustainability first. So I wanted to get things kicked off because I, I came, became aware of um, your organization um, sometime over the last couple of years and um, wanted to see if maybe John, if you wanted to get this started off, with just can, you know, just, just tell us a little bit more about what y'all are all about and what y'all are trying to accomplish. Uh, sure. Well, uh, I think this all started um, a little more than a year ago. Uh, I was serving for a New York State senator as his proxy on the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. And a handful of pro-harvest, pro-extraction party boats went into the senator's office and said, uh, you know, McMurray's too, uh, leans too far to the left. He, he's too conservation-minded. He's, he, he wants to, to keep all these fish in the water so, so the public can benefit. And, and, you know, our businesses depend on pulling a lot of fish out of the water. and uh, of course, the senator, not wanting to lose votes, uh, got rid of me pretty quick um, as his proxy. Um, if you're not familiar with the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, that's what manages striped bass, menhaden, 
uh, the things that are really important to, uh, to the guys in this area. Um, so, uh, you know, what I, what I was thinking is how could this small group of stakeholders, it's not representative of the fishing public go in, uh, and, and affect change like this. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, why don't we have our own, uh, our own industry organization, uh, that, that has that sort of ability to, to say, well, listen, you know, our jobs depend on, on having fish in the water, having availability, having abundance. Because for us, uh, that availability and that abundance drives participation. Um, you know, abundance and availability uh, really is what books trips for me and what books for the books, books trips for most of the saltwater fishing guides and most of the charter boat captains. It's not necessarily how many we could kill, but, but it's, it's a, uh, uh, availability and how many we could catch. And, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, taking home fish is not important, but it's, but I will say it's, it's not as important as, uh, as catching fish in general. Um, mm -hmm. so the, the idea was to try to tie, uh, an economic benefit to conservation measures, whereas the, uh, the messaging had always been that the charter party boat industry suffers from conservation measures, but exactly the opposite is true, I think, uh, particularly for our part of the, the fishing community. And, uh, you know, as soon as I got this idea, I, you know, I called the guy who's the best grassroots organizer I, organizer I know and has a lot of clout uh, with our industry and in the fishing community in general. I called Tony and I'm like, man, we got to do this because... You know, if we don't, we're just going to keep getting stomped on. And, and uh, you know, Tony, Tony did a lot of the heavy lifting here uh, to get this thing rolling. And, uh, you know, I think at this point we're, we're rolling pretty good, man. We've got a, we've got a good, good solid membership. We've got a good board and, and uh, both the federal and state management bodies recognize us and, and consult with us. And uh, I think we've, we've moved the needle and we've only been at it for about a year. Yeah, no, that, that that's awesome, and and I think just uh, add a little, which we can get into this a little bit more. But I think, um, especially with uh, um, for those not familiar with with Magnus and Stevens Act, there, there's, um, I think that there's it, it's basically our voice isn't being heard, right? I mean, it, it's it's we 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 believe in, in conservation of the resource. Um, Magnuson Stevens has been a successful act, um, and there, you know, I, I guess could, Tony, do you want to sh shed some some light on um, the the Magnuson Stevens reenactment and, and and how our voice is not being represented there? So uh, yeah, Rick, I'd happy to do that. Um, John, thank you for the kind words. So. Um, Magnus and Stevens was originally enacted back in the 70s, and it, it created um, created boundaries three to 200 miles off the coast, uh, essentially called the Easy, and that was essentially foreign fleets from fishing our nearshore waters. And um, Magnuson is a is a framework of rules regulations. Uh, it's been reauthorized multiple times, kind of updated the change with with how how fishing has changed since the 70s. And 
when you look at the United States versus other countries, um, it's no shock that people from Europe come here to fish in Florida, you know, for a lot of times for stuff that, you know, like jacks, stuff that, stuff that really isn't like high on our sport fish list. Um, it's just they, they don't have anything available over there anymore. It's been fished down unsustainably. It's not coming back anytime soon. And then um, Magnuson, uh, through rules and regulations, has been able to use things like annual catch limits and rebuilding timelines, which means, you know, an annual catch limit is like, this is how many fish you can catch in a year. And if you catch more than that, in a lot of instances, there's paybacks. You have to pay back your part of your quota the next year. Rebuilding timeline is if a, if a fish is overfished, if the stock is depleted, uh, it, you have to do a rebuilding plan that gets them back to the target levels within 10 years. And it's, yep. it, it hurts a lot of time as a fisherman, especially in the case right now on the East Coast with, uh, with several of our fisheries, you know, when they say, hey, look, you can't fish for these things for a while or, or we're lowering the limit considerably. But we, we firmly believe in sustainable business through conservation. And we see the long-term benefit of yeah, – it's – the simplest way to explain it is, are you going to jump into a cold pool or are you going to dip your toe in and take 20 minutes to ease yourself in? Like we, we would rather take the hard reductions as quickly as possible and get that stock back up to where it needs to be. Um, right. Whereas other people would just chip away, chip away, and you kind of languish in limbo forever. Um, and, and Magnuson has a framework that allows us to do that. Um there's a lot of things that we can address with it. Uh, you know, Congress is looking at a real, the last reauthorization was in 2006. Congress is looking at another reauthorization. Now, um, the guides association was privileged enough to be on a panel about two weeks ago with, uh, the chairman of water oceans and wildlife, Congressman Huffman from house natural resources committee. Uh, our group was one of the panelists and we were, we were able to help, uh, Congressman Huffman build a roadmap, you know, for our futures, for our fisheries for the next 10 years. Uh, and we're going to be engaged in that process as it goes through. Um, <clears throat> and we're, I think the most interesting thing about what John and I have built, uh, and also our board and our chairman and every, every single person that's helped us out along the way, there's too many to name. Um, most interesting thing about what, what we've built is, is, is that our voice is really the first one in the fishing community that's saying, we want these regulations. We want stability. Right. We want to know if we put $50,000 into our engines for next year, that we're going to be able to take those trips and, and people are wanting to go fishing with us because they have a reasonable expectation of catch and fish and, and, and that there's value to fish in the water, not just dead on a dock. And uh, yeah. the one truth in all of this, Rick, is that we don't fight when there's a lot of fish. We only fight with other groups when the fish populations start to crash. So, you know, we want to we want to make the pie bigger for everyone. We don't want to say this is our slice and you can't have it. Um, right. So that's that's what John and I are working towards. Well, and and I think it's you know what what y'all are talking about is um, what which I wind up discussing whenever I do these podcasts, I did another one recently and we talked about this and, 
you know, kind of what's happening, you know, around the globe. Well, you got worldwide population growing and there's only a finite amount of, of resources. So if you're not taking conservation seriously today, it's what's called the tragedy of the commons. It's what happened in Europe, right? It's when the, the, the resources depleted to a point where it can't sustain itself and can't rebound for the foreseeable future, if not indefinitely. And so then that problem is then basically the way that I have to simplify it is there's three threats to fisheries, right? There's what I call three P's. There's population, there's uh, pollution, and and there's policy. And so this is a perfect example of, 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 you know, whether it's Magnuson-Stevens, and I know some other things that I want to get into with y'all and and learn learn about from y'all that y'all are working on, but the the Magnuson-Stevens Act in particular is a perfect example of what needs to be done um, in terms of conserving these resources so that they can rebound because you can't, if you're not planning for the future with even more demand for these uh, precious resources, then, then you're, 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 you're fa- the system's failing. Right. Um, so anyway, kudos to y'all. I, you, that was one of the things that when I came across y'all's organization, I was like, this, this, yes, this is, this, this does represent my voice. This is what I believe. Um, and so what, what, what are some other issues um, on the conservation front that, that y'all are working on aside from Magnus and Stevens that are, uh, the, the, that's important and y'all are moving the needle on? John, you want to take first swing at that and then I'll follow up? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so just a, a couple of clarifying things on Magnuson that I, I think are worthy of mentioning. Um, so I, I sat on the, the, the council, the, the Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council, which is one of the federal management bodies that, uh, that uh, you know, creates and regu- or, or actually recommends uh, conservation measures to the, to the National Marine Fishery Service. But, uh, you know, since 2006, uh, which is when the Magnuson Act got real teeth, uh, we've really seen, um, you know, kind of wide scale rebuilding of federally managed fisheries where, uh, it, and the reason that that has happened is because they've implemented annual catch limits and accountability measures if those catch limits are not met. And, uh, you know, back in 90, 1996, we had these uh, rebuilding requirements. Um, but, but in 2006, uh, we had uh, real teeth in them. So uh, you have, if the stock was overfished, it had to be rebuilt in no less than 10 years unless the biology of the stock prevented that from happening. Um, but it also required that that this body of scientists set the upper catch limit, whereas before uh, it was kind of the, the council members playing fast and loose with, with some of these numbers and kind of avoiding real conservation measures. And the point is, you know, having sat around that table, uh, the discussion always revolved around, well, how do we get around these conservation measures? And, and the council members had a lot of political pressure um, from their constituencies to allow overfishing, but what the Magnuson Act did was to kind of take that political pressure away from them because they had to comply with this federal law that requires that A, they prevent overfishing and B, they rebuild overfish stocks. So uh, with, with that said, um, the state management bodies have not had to, to comply with those same requirements. So what we've seen is kind of a sanctioned 
overfishing, uh, particularly within the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Now, uh, what we're dealing with right now and, and was probably ver the very first thing on our agenda is striped bass. And uh, we found out fairly recently that the stock is overfished and overfishing is occurring, which means, uh, you know, we've gone beyond this uh, spawning stock or under this spawning stock biomass threshold uh, that, that scientists had determined was a healthy stock. And, we, and that means the stock is overfished and we are currently and we still are removing fish at a rate the stock can't sustain. Um, and there's been a lot of political pressure on commissioners to uh, avoid rebuilding and to revisit those, uh, those reference points, the biomass and fishing mortality reference points, and to, to lower the bar. And it's mostly come from uh, you know, the, the pro-harvest, pro-extraction, uh, party charter boat community. Um, and, and to some extent from the commercial community, but really this is a recreational fishing problem, not a, not a commercial one. And, you know, our, our, our spot in the whole debate was to say, well, listen, you know, there's a huge constituency of striped bass anglers, certainly the majority, the, the, the big majority. And, and, you know, I'd have to say it's probably around 80 to 90% of that fishery wants conservation. They want those fish in the water. They want to stop the overfishing. They want to rebuild that stock as quickly as possible. And instead of, you know, having kind of that uh, small voice of, of average Joe anglers, and most of these guys don't want to show up to hearings or, or take part in the often contentious fishery management process, um, but they do want conservation. Um, and, and we kind of represent their voice and we're also able to come across as a group of folks who make a living from this resource, just like the commercial folks do, just like the potter charter, the extractive party charter boats do. And uh, we we need these fish in the water. We need conservation to survive. And you know, we're hardworking folks too. And 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 a lot of us, you know, we don't make a whole lot of money. We do this because we love it. Uh, and we're not, you know, rich guys playing with our food. We're small businessmen. And uh, I think that's been a pretty, uh, you, you know, that's been a missing part of this whole debate up until recently. I mean, certainly folks knew that we existed, um, but we hadn't really had a voice. And, and let's be honest, the other side has been very good at showing up, at making meetings with commissioners, with council members with their state government folks. Uh, and, and we haven't been good at doing that. And, uh, but that's changing rapidly because we're becoming very good at doing that. And, um, you know, having our guides make those meetings, uh, you know, in Capitol Hill and in their states, I think has absolutely moved the dial on striped bass. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done here, but um, but but that's where we are right now, and, and striped bass is kind of the, the the biggest flagship issue that we're engaged in right now. Okay. And what are what? And, and Tony, I, I know you were gonna to, to add some to this, but I just have a have a quick question. I mean, so like when a when when your striped bass fishery, for example, and and you realize that it's being overfished. And you're and you're using um, your organization, American Saltwater Guides Association, to represent anglers 
and and small businesses that are affected by this, but also um, want conservation of our fisheries. What what are the types of obstacles that that y'all face when you're when you're attending these meetings or, or meeting with representatives? I mean, what, I I just it you know we're we're on the same sheet of music. I'm just trying to understand even wrap my head around someone who's saying no, it's okay to overfish it. Okay, I just don't. Rick, have you ever seen that, that video, that hysterical video, um, uh, the the fly fishing parody? I, if you said the guy's name, I'd remember it in a heart. Hank something. Hank Patterson. Hank Patterson. He does it when he's standing in the river explaining to the three guys. He's like, "No, we release the fish," and he's like, "Well, you release them into a cooler and then you eat them." He's like, "No, we we release the fish." Well, why in the world would you want to do that? Sometimes we feel like that. Right. Sometimes we're we're a couple of generations behind freshwater. Okay. Yeah. I'm not saying we release everything. I mean, John has built a very robust business on uh, going out, finding bluefin tuna, and and casting fly and artificial like poppers for them. So. You know, some of those fish, uh, certainly, you know, an angler pays John to take him out and he wants to harvest that fish and that's fine. You know, people harvest fish in saltwater, I think, more regularly than they do in freshwater. But conceptually, we're a little bit behind, uh, let's say, like your largemouth bass or your or your trout fishermen in general, you know, stereotypically. So what we face is... Um, what we what we face is explaining why we do what we do and when you when you're in a elected official or a bureaucrat's office you know and you're talking to him about it uh you know it's just so common sense for guys like us you know uh, any kind of anyone experience with like fly fishing in freshwater or you know light tackle fishing for bass or whatever it, it's but we have to kind of start from ground zero and say, no, 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 you know, our clients are more interested in the experience. They, they're, rather than filling the cooler, they want to catch as many of these things as possible. Yeah, they may take a couple home, but that's not the measure of their day. So if there was, you know, our clients, if there was a huge school of 30 pound striped bass and it was a catch and release season, so like you knew going out that, we are not allowed to kill these fish. We're just going out to catch this massive five-mile-long school of 30-pound stripers. Our phones wouldn't stop ringing. There would be people lined up to go. You know, right. their their enjoyment is not based on the ability to take that fish home. And, and explaining that in a saltwater world to folks is is we're getting better at it, but it's, it's experience over, over filling the cooler. And I think as, as we age, you know, John and I are certainly not as young as we were 20 years ago, the people that are filling in the ranks, we rep, we represent, you know, that 50 and under crowd who understands this and intrinsically gets it. And then there's kind of like an older, an older guard that still feels the other way. So, um, you know, as far as explaining it to folks, it's it's actually a breath of fresh air for a lot of them, and it's it's an, it's an attractive and compelling. Uh, we're we're kind of a voice in the darkness. 
you know, for, for, a, for an elected official who wants to have, you know, hey, look, I, am, I improved this on the environment and that's on my record, you know, we may be the guys who end up supporting that because it, yeah. it helps our cause. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's kind of what we deal with. Sometimes yeah, well, no. yeah, you can go on, Rick. No, no, I was just to say, yeah, I mean, it, it does. I mean, that, that's kind of a, you know, I, I certainly um, have experienced that type of mentality from, from anglers. I, I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and, you know, there's, there is a type of angler that, you know, it's not a successful day unless the cooler's full. Um, and that's just, you know, I, I don't, so, so part of what y'all are doing then is also helping to, you know, just create education and awareness about this stuff, you know, and go, Hey, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to do that. You know, I mean, look, I like, I like to keep a speckled trout and, and eat it for dinner just as much as the next guy, but I don't fill my cooler every time I go out, you know? And that's, um, you're the guy who we represent, right? You know, right. yeah, well, hey, look, we're going to harvest some fish. And, like, you know, you hook a fish deep or something, conservationist, you should keep that fish. Yeah, yeah. you look at a fish and you know it's not going to make it, you know, keep it, eat it. That's, it's a blood sport. We understand yeah. that. We're on the water a lot. But, you know, take as much as you need and leave the rest for somebody else. Um, exactly. So that's, you know, that's where we are. Hey, Rick. Nice. Uh, so I, I just wanted to respond to something you said that kind of kind of hit a nerve. Um, you mentioned, you know, why do people want to overfish? And I, I think that's that's a question a lot of people ask. And, uh, you know, there there's a certain part of the industry that can survive on a depleted stock um, or not. So so if you go out on a, a hundred foot party boat, they're going to have access to summer flounder in 60 or 90 feet of water that the small boat guy or the shore guy wouldn't. Um, and, and sometimes you get these guys after a couple of beers behind their, behind closed doors. They'll say, well, I don't, you know, I don't want abundance because then guys are going to, they're not going to want to fish with me. Um, uh, but, but this, yeah, and, and maybe that's not entirely accurate for everyone, but but the point is that these guys can can serve, and certainly the commercial folks who fish with nets can survive on a depleted stock. Now, once you get into the shore-based angler, the surf caster, or the light tackle guy, or the fly fisher who uses the most inefficient gear, on uh, and, and the shore guys, you know, have limited access, and if the fish don't come up in the beach, they don't get them. Now, those are the guys that. Can, can't survive on a depleted stock, and subsequently, those are the guys that are the most conservation part of the uh, of the stakeholder community. And uh, it, and you know, I, the whole experience thing that Tony talked about, I think he hit the nail on the head. And and I don't think it applies to just our clients. I think it applies to everyone. Um, you know, it's if they just want to fill up coolers, go to the fucking fish market. It's it's orders of magnitude cheaper. So sorry well, not you know, not only that, that, Rick, but if you look at <laughs> if you look at the economic numbers, you know, uh, the Commerce Department just put out that recreational outdoors in the United States is bigger than farming and mining together. It's it was staggering. It, it was two point two percent of the GDP. 
Okay, and it's uh, it, it directly correlates to the and oh, and, and recreational fishing and boating was the number one component, the number one component of the outdoor economic engine. So, if you look at striped bass, when striped bass stocks plummeted in the eighties, um, pre moratorium, you know, we came out of the moratorium in nineteen ninety five, but right right at moratorium there were 500,000 trips coastwide people were not going because they weren't there and if you fast forward to 2006 at the peak of the abundance there were 10.5 million trips for striped bass yeah, so that's crazy. when you're talking on when you're talking economy you know abundance drives economy it's not just for us it's for everyone else I mean, we, you know what I mean? It's it's almost like you're like, man, we're trying to help you too. Don't fight us so hard. Like this is what's best for everyone. Everyone, right? right. Well, I mean, it's the same thing, you know. I mean, it's, to give you an example, like, so I, I have not fished in in y'all's neck of the woods um, before, but me and some buddies, we go down to Florida every year and fish in the Everglades. And part and part of that comes with hey we usually drive halfway we get a hotel we're eating dinners and you know on our way down there we're, we're camping down there but we're buying things at the store at the shops and everything along the way and all of that is is helping to drive the economic engine and so when people come up there to fish stripers um, it's got to be the same thing right i mean it's, it's well you know look, rick the, here here's a you you bring up an excellent point because you know i, I we spoke on the phone before my folks live in charleston i'm from the south the big difference, the the biggest difference that y'all don't, it's it's just a geography thing. You could walk, you could walk from Cape Charles, Virginia to Maine and have shore access. Yeah. So when you're looking at, like I live on the Chesapeake Bay, there is no shore access here. A father cannot grab his son. He has to go to a state park or something like that. He could literally walk from Cape May, New Jersey to Sandy Hook and fish every inch of the way. And nobody's going to stop you and tell you it's private property. It's just wide open. So when John's referring to the shorebound anglers, it's staggering. Like 50, over 50% of the striped bass landed were landed by shorebound anglers. You're talking about everyone from billionaire hedge fund managers to, you know, the guy who started and just started in uh, the electric union and grabs his son after a hard day of work and walks down to the beach. And I mean, he's all in fishing for striped bass for two or three hundred dollars between the plugs or the bait and the, and the rods. I mean, it's not expensive. It's every man's fish. And the access is just through the roof. You know, y'all don't have that in in the south you just don't <laughs> you don't um you have to have a boat you have to have so when we're saying these guys are hurt it is not a small segment of the population at all right it's it's a massive part of the population and it's it's the biggest part of the driver so no that's you know. what i mean you know and that, that, that's a those, those are huge numbers <laughs> i mean but that is that's crazy. But yeah, you're right about the access. You know, here it's like if you're if you're not on a boat, it's tough to to get out and fish. I mean, you get on like a pier or something. But you know, it, it, it's not. 
people aren't walking the, the shore doing a lot of not as much fishing like that here as, as there is um, up your up your way i mean i asked john john lives in long island ask john what it's like i you know i fish island beach state park in jersey all the time you get your you get your off-road vehicle pass just drive up and down the beach and you just you know ask teague island chink teague island all these places you just you know, people can get their hotel room for the weekend, whatever, walk right out of their hotel, throw a rod off the beach, and you look left and right, and it's sand as far as you can see. So that's awesome. You know. Well, 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 well shifting shifting gears just just a little bit. Um, I kind of wanted to talk also about so with what y'all are doing. Um, like, do, do y'all have any? Uh, success stories that y'all can share where, where, y'all, where y'all are helping to move the needle? Because, I mean, that's the one thing that I always try to do in these podcasts is because it's like, you know, a lot of times we're talking about climate change or in this case, we're, we're talking about a lot of fisheries policy and it can get a little depressing because you're like, oh my God, it's like this is almost hopeless. And that's that's certainly not the case. Um, and so I was, I was hoping that maybe y'all could... Um, shed some uh, some some positive vibes and a and a positive story of of some of the work that y'all are doing. Let me take a swing at that, Tony. Yeah, you you go and then I'll, I mean it, I'll tell you what we're doing a lot of work. So sit back and kick your feet up because you know we're we're moving the needle on a lot. But John, you can certainly please start. So, so the two things that, that really stand out in my mind when you ask that question, Rick, were, well, the first is the, the Huffman uh, listening session and the congressional testimony that I gave this sp- the last May. Just the fact that they called on us as part of the American Saltwater Guides Association, um, that spoke to me as, okay, well, these guys, you know, understand that there's a different perspective here that hasn't been communicated uh, it hasn't sufficiently been communicated yet. So we need to get these guys in, as, in, in the conversation and, and the, we need to start recognizing these folks. But uh, w- with that said, uh, on the species specific level, the other thing that really stood out to me was, uh, was the work that we've done on bluefish. And bluefish are now overfished too. And, and I'm not going to get into the details on that. But we've uh, we've initiated the, the council has initiated a rebuilding plan, uh, and it's and it's also a reallocation plan too. Uh, we're going to look at allocation between commercial and recreational sectors, and uh, as part of that public scoping process, up and down the coast, we had guys going to these scoping meetings and saying, "Listen, you know, bluefish are are the prime example of a sport fish that's not really worth much." Uh, on the commercial market, for one, and on the recreational market as dead as extracted dead fish, too. I mean, it's a sport fish. It's it's kind of oily. People don't like to eat it, uh, but it's very very valuable to us swimming around in the water. So that value needs to be communicated in this decision making process, and it needs to be thoroughly analyzed. Like, what is the value? of a live bluefish, not the value of an extracted dead bluefish, but a live bluefish. And managers heard that, and it's actually part of the initial, uh, the initial draft um, of their, uh, the, I'm sorry, public information draft, um, that, that consideration. Um, and I suspect it'll be part of the final amendment 
Um, but but that whole idea of managing for fish in the water instead of managing for extraction had never ever made it into a management document. And I thought that was very significant, and that was totally driven by our industry. Wow. So I mean, so that that's pretty incredible. I mean, if you think about yeah, it, has, what, 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 it, has much wider implications than just bluefish. I mean, it is everything that we fish. It sets a it sets a precedent moving forward that this matters, and we need to we need to look into this on each decision we make. Right. You know, if if it fits the bill. Um, you know, if it's because we there's such a variety of species in salt water, and the you know angler attitude towards them is can vary greatly. Um, but you know, bluefish, like John said, is just the poster child for you know these things are. I mean, you know, look, man, we get some big bluefish. We we get bluefish over 35 inches. You know, in the fall, those things can be 17, 18 pounds. And, and, you know, we sometimes we're sight fishing for them and it's fun as heck and they're nasty and they're mean and they'll bite you and they'll, sometimes they'll tail walk. I mean, it is, it is an experience for us when you run across some big bluefish and nobody, if you're going to eat a bluefish, most people are going to eat the little ones because the big ones are pretty nasty. Um, they're just too oily. So I agree with John. That's, it is a, massively significant thing to put that on the radar i would add as far as our victories go um you know it may not seem like it now but one of the you know kind of one of the banes of our existence is the reduction fishery for menhaden menhaden is a keystone species of our environment everything that flies over swims in wiggles in the mud and will eat menhaden and uh, there's a company called Cook Aquaculture, a subsidiary. It's a Canadian-owned company. A subsidiary of them is Omega Protein. Omega has two ports, one in Reedville, Virginia, one in, uh, one in a couple in the Gulf of Mexico. And they run a reduction fishery where they persane with like 5,000 foot nets. They persane these massive schools of Manhattan that they, that they get with spotter planes. Uh, they put them in the ship's hold. They reduce them down to oil. They turn them into chicken food, cat food, food for aquaculture, which cook, it's cook aquaculture. So they're essentially, they're removing a keystone species from the Chesapeake Bay, the nation's largest estuary, the Gulf of Mexico, you know, insane bycatch numbers. Uh, and then they're feeding them to disease Atlantic sample on the Pacific coast. Uh, it's it's insane. I mean, it's yeah. It's I mean, you know, you. So we have kind of raised the level of awareness, and I think we're the first. I know because John and I have been working on Manhattan for the better part of like 15 years. I know that we're the only group out there that says, you know, you guys may fish for redfish, we may fish for stripers, but man, we got this in common. And it's Omega, and they're wrecking three coasts. And so it's it's a, something that ties us with the guides down in Louisiana, ties us with the steelhead fishermen in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, it, is, it is not, no matter what Omega wants to tell you, it is not sustainable. As I could talk about it for days, but have we moved the needle on it 
it yet. No. Uh, currently, the Menhaden, they, Omega broke their bay cap uh, quota last year. Uh, the decision is at Secretary Ross's desk right now to find them out of compliance uh, and to shut the fishery down until they can get back into compliance. Um, but, you know, together alone, we were getting our butts kicked here for decades. But together, that's a pretty compelling argument. And I, and I got to tell you, like, that would be a profound change because you cannot remove. So to give you an idea of the number of fish that they remove in the lower 48 states, uh, Reedville, Virginia is, I believe, the second or third highest port in tonnage of fish caught behind, you know, like New Bedford Mass, which is like the ground fish fishery, the scallop fishery, all this kind of stuff, squid. So it's one species and it's, I think, the second or third highest tonnage compared to everything else. So, I mean, they're extracting like 400 million menhaden out of the Chesapeake Bay uh, and, and close inshore waters every year and saying it doesn't affect our ecosystem and the Chesapeake Bay being a nursery for everything on the East Coast, in the Mid-Atlantic and the, the Northeast. Um, it's, it's, you know, when you tell the story, it's one of those things where, like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, how, how, do, how, does, how do they allow this to continue? Um, right. And, and by, by kind of creating this group of like-minded people on three coasts, um, we actually might have a chance of making some pretty profound changes. So that, to me, that's what... It's not just about sport fish and game fish. Like we kind of look at the, we look at the whole pie, and and you, you can't remove that much of a forage species, a keystone foundation species, and expect everything to be okay. Um, so I'm pretty proud of that. Like on a personal level, uh, we have we moved the needle. Have we won anything? No. But are we finally all working together? Yes. It's pretty exciting. So. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I mean, you know, it also brings up another point is that, you know, just because something similar to what y'all are talking about with like bluefish and, and minhain, just because that may not be a popular, uh, you know, I mean, no one's going to go target minhain, you know, but, but, you know, everything in the water has value and it has a purpose, right? I mean, and if you remove or extract something, overfish it to the point where it can't sustain itself it has huge implications throughout the ecosystems that we don't even understand so to, to just blindly say well we're going to basically wipe these guys out of this estuary i mean that's just it, common sense tells you that's a bad idea so yeah. weak fish um, used to be one of the primary fish that we fished for and john could show you i could show you too picture a picture of you know of 30 inch weak fish from 15 years ago and as soon as the Menhaden population started getting depleted, you know, the science now tells us that the weak fish population is by far the lowest it's ever been. It's, they, there were points in time where they wondered if there was enough biological, there was enough numbers of fish for biological diversity to be able to say, hey, yeah, the population can still, will still exist, not even sustain itself. Like they have a future. That's how low the numbers are, and and what we're finding through the science is they're growing to about 11 inches and disappearing. And a weak fish is a soft grade fish, you know, pretty similar to your speckled trout. 
And when they head out of Delaware Bay and Raritan Bay and the Chesapeake Bay, you basically have like this, you know, migration that almost looks like the wildebeest in the Serengeti that everything starts moving south in the winter and the, the, the predatory fish just park themselves at the mouth of the bays. These juvenile fish, which everything leave the bays and there's no menhaden and the weak fish are the next thing on the, on the menu. And I mean, I know in the Chesapeake Bay, I haven't caught a weak fish over 11 inches in like 16 years. And I used to catch them 10 pounds. So that's just to, just to expound on your, it, it's another inshore yeah. fish that we just don't have anymore. Yeah. And, and, and actually that kind of brings up something, uh, Tony, you and I had a, um, a, a chance to, to chat a, a couple of weeks ago and, one of the things that we were talking about was, um, you know, speaking of like species that, that you don't, that you don't see or, or don't, didn't used to see and, and everything. Um, like, aren't, aren't y'all starting to see like some, some species up, up in that direction that you, that you didn't used to see like redfish and, and, and shrimp and, and all that. Everything, everything you just named and then, and in numbers that are, and numbers that you can go out and target them, not just like, oh, geez, look, I caught this. That's it. Yeah, like, uh, this is weird, you know? Yeah. No, like, hey, man, we're going, you know, we're going cobia fishing today. We're going fishing for giant bull red drum. We're not we're not going fishing for stripers. Those decisions are being made every day. Like, in the summertime, that's what people did here. And I was, that, Virginia just opened up a white shrimp fishery, which is the shrimp y'all have in North Carolina, uh, South Carolina. Yeah. So you say they're actually going to have a commercial trawl fishery for white shrimp. That's how many of them That's unreal. And so, and, and so the, the reason I bring that up is that, you know, climate change does have uh, a, a stake in all this in terms of affecting our fisheries too. So, you, so basically what you have is you have the population growing, right? And everyone wants to extract the resource. There's a finite number of resource needs to be managed. How do we manage it by affecting policy? Insert American Saltwater Guides Association by representing anglers such as myself who believe exactly what you believe in terms of the conservation of these fisheries. But while that's all happening, you've got climate change impacting our fisheries, changes in migratory patterns, uh, ocean acidification. Um, so that I think the climate change, and, and I know that I think uh, Representative Cunningham from South Carolina um, wants to, to to introduce climate change as as, as part of Magnuson Stevens to kind of bring this all full circle. But um, that you know that's got to be part of the conversation too, and 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 in my opinion. Well, Congressman Cunningham introduced climate legislation this session. Um, you know, one of the, one of the one of the co-sponsors was Congressman Huffman. We've mentioned his name before. So, you know, when you get when you get support for your legislation from the chairman of House of uh, Water, Oceans, and Wildlife, that's a pretty good sign that you know there's, there's support for it because nothing's really going to get past that committee um, unless unless they like it. So that's, that was a big thumbs up for Congressman Cunningham. We were very supportive of that bill, um, as a guides association. And, uh, you know, we're sure, we're sure next Congress, um, that that's going to come up again. And it's, you know, John will tell you summer fly 
flounder and, and black sea bass, those biomasses have moved what, like 200 miles north, John? About, right? Yeah, and in some cases, even more than that. And the way I think we look at climate change right now within the context of our organization is resilience under new stressors, under new climate change and new stressors. And the way you get that resilience is you create abundance. Um, you have to have a lot of fish in the water. That way, when uh, things start to uh, buckle under these stressors, when, when those fish start to die or move north, you have enough of them around that can evolve to uh, to deal with those stressors. Um, yep. and, and it's also, it's a management issue as well with, with shifting stocks. And, and Tony mentioned black sea bass. It's probably a, the poster child and, and summer flounder comes in a close second. Um, it's a management issue too. As those stocks shift north, we have to account for that. And, um, you know, that means northern states need some of the quota and, and southern, states are, southern states aren't willing to give that up. And uh, in the case of summer flounder, New York in particular has been on the uh, the short end of that stick. Um, and, and it's not really something we fully engaged in yet, this redistribution uh, issue, but it's likely something we probably will in the near future. Um, uh, just one quick note on, on Menhaden. Um, we kind of moved on for that from that, but uh, there was a non-compliance finding by the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission at our last meeting. Uh, I'm sorry, two meetings ago. Um, when was that, Tony? Um, uh, well, they actually they, they actually found them out of compliance at the, at the winter meeting, and I yeah. guess that was that was right around Halloween, John. Okay, yeah, I said November. I guess it was yeah. Okay, yeah, because so, I remember like, oh God, what if I miss Halloween with my kid? Yeah, that was. Um, so, so the Secretary of Commerce has to make a decision on whether or not they uphold that compliance finding by the 17th of this month. Um, and one of our our uh, members has a client that has direct uh, communication with the Secretary of Commerce, um, and we've of course submitted comments as well. But this could be a major, major win. Uh, with with the Menhaden resource and and in the long term with the ability of the commission of the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission to manage fisheries coastally, uh, you know, with in a cooperative way, because if they don't uphold this non-compliance finding, it, you really have to question the management authority of the commission altogether. Um, so at, at any rate, it, there's going to be some big news by the 17th, and that'll be a really a really big win if it if it goes our way. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a huge, that, that would be an absolutely un, unbelievable um, win. And I hope I'm, I'm you, you've got my support, that's for sure. <laughs> um, well, hey, well, um, what if uh, American Saltwater Guides Association, I, I do want to make sure I'm mentioning your, your website. Um, it's saltwaterguidesassociation.com. Um, any anyone listening? How how can uh, anyone who wants to show support for what you're doing? Um, how can how can they get involved with uh, with your organization? Uh, well, they they could certainly sign up for our alerts and, and newsletters on the website. Uh, but more importantly, they can make a donation, however small it is. And there's an area on the website to do that. 
Um, Tony and I and our members go to every single meeting that has any sort of management or any sort of application to our members on the water. Um, and we have to pay to, to send those guys. Um, and that takes fundraising. Unfortunately, it's, it's the worst part of this job, but, but we need money to operate. So that's, that's how you could have the most impact. I think. Yeah. And absolutely social media as well. We're very active on Instagram and, um, on Instagram, it's Salt H2O Guides. Um, Facebook is Saltwater Guides Association, American Saltwater Guides Association. Um, you know, and, and if anything, please donate. There's a big button right when you, I made sure and put it right in a spot where you can't miss it. You may even accidentally hit it when you're scrolling. Um, we're a C3, so everything's tax deductible. Uh, just be an enormous help to us and you know we want to be a resource you know we we have a term we call it beer reviewed science and and by the time news reaches a tackle shop where they're talking about you know the reductions coming up next year or what's going on with this fish it is beer reviewed science so the biggest thing that we hear from people in general is i never know what to believe uh, you know, you hear so many different things, and and I think we've kind of come out as straight shooters. That hey, look, this is, and we do it in fisherman talk. We don't do it in nerd and ease, you know, marine biology talk. We do it in fisheries language, where the common person can read it and go, you know what, I understand that a little better now. So, you know, follow the blog. Uh, look at what we're writing. It's gonna make sense. And um, for all those people who kind of feel hopeless out there, just know that like there, there are people who wake up in the morning every day and just throw everything they have at this stuff. And then they go to sleep and they wake up and they do it again. You know, we want, we want our kids and our grandkids fishing. Uh, that's probably the only legacy that John and I would like to leave is that, you know, 50 years from now, people are still taking their kids by the, you know, the little son and daughter by the hand and walking down the beach and throwing a plug for stripers. It's, that'd be a pretty cool thing to do. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, I mean, and really the definition of sustainability, right? You know, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Um, so I think that, that that's awesome. Um is there any, I was going to kind of shift gears and just, uh, just kind of ask a few sort of rapid fire questions for, for, for about fishing, but I do also want to make sure that we cover um, all areas that, that y'all like to cover um, before I do that. Is there anything else that I'm, that I maybe missed that, that y'all like to add? I'm I'm pretty good. I think it was pretty comprehensive. I don't know how much attention your listeners are going to have if we talk much more, but you know, we can talk forever. I promise yeah, you that. Right? We could get real wonky on it and start talking about this. <laughs> all right, right on. Well, um, all right. So I'm, I'm going to throw some questions out there. Um, what is uh, John' uh, favorite saltwater species on fly? Uh, well, I'd have to say bluefin tuna, even though we, we don't catch many. Um, it's definitely the hardest thing and you can get your knuckles anywhere close to that reel or rip a hole in them, man. Those things, those things crush flies. 
and they take out really? 250 yards of line before you could get the motor started to chase them. I mean, it's pretty intense, man. But, you know, I kind of grew up on stripers. You know, I, I'll always love stripers. They're, they're kind of the lifeblood of my business. Um, and there's something extraordinarily handsome about them. Uh, and, and yeah, I, you know, I'd have to say stripers are the most important one to me. And they, they crush poppers too, which is awesome. Yeah, you can't beat a, a top water take. What? <laughs> um, so just just curious, what type of uh, rod reel combo are you working with on a blue fin tuna? Just because I've, I've so I, we, I, that that is crazy. So I I run out and tuna fish. I probably did seventy five tuna trips this year, and I always keep two fourteen weights under the gunnels. Now, I try to discourage people from booking fly fishing trips because it is really tough. Um, and, yeah. and most of the bluefin we capture on, on uh, large and, and poppers with, with pretty big spinning gear. Um, but, you know, if the opportunity arises, you get them boiling behind the boat or you get them blitzing, uh, it's good to have those 14 weights there. Now, I, I, I know they make 16 weights now. Um, occasionally, I have guys bringing them on the boat. But, man, they're like throwing a broomstick. The 14 weight isn't much. Better. Oh, yeah, I can't. I can't. I've never thrown off uh, uh, anything over a 12 weight. So this thing's got to be pretty. <laughs> the reveal is yeah. the size of a hubcap, too. Right. Because uh, you got to have like, you know, 650 yards of like back. I mean, it's like John said, you blink and they just dumped 100 yards. Yeah. Like, it's uh, nothing crazy. you've ever caught. Yeah. I bet that's exciting as hell. Yeah. The first of all is after that you're kind of like I'm done, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, Tony. What is uh, s- s- same question? Favorite saltwater species on fly? I think I've spent the better part of my career fighting for stripers, and it's not the strongest fish. It's not, you know. It's not the smartest fish. It's not like tricking a bonefish. But like John said, there's just, you know, there's just something about them. You know, we, we have a dominant year class. You know, every about four or five years, stripers have a really good spawn. And it's almost like where I live, you know, this is where the juveniles stay until they're about six or seven years old. And you like watch them grow up. You know, you see a lot of 12 inch stripers, you know, you just kind of look out and you're like, man, three, four years, this is going to be fun. And um, they're just, there's so much to so many people. Um, I got to say, you know, stripers and and getting a big one in shallow water is something pretty special. Uh, You know, getting a big one in deep water is fun, but they fight different. But they really, and if you if you can get them in cold, shallow water, uh, it's something every every diehard fisherman should experience because it's really it's really a badass fish. It really is. I can't really compare them to anything else. It's a striper's a striper. Um, that's awesome. All right, so we got we we've got bluefin, but both in, in agreement of on striper. Um, and now since we're talking about you know responsible fishing right you know now i don't need to fill my entire cooler um but what are what are what are some of your uh favorite species to, to throw on the grill or oven um from from your neck of the woods 
Oh man. Uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw it on the grill or the oven, uh, the oven, but these, these winter bluefin that we get, the, the ones that we're catching in, in December, they're all fattened up for that trek south. And, uh, you know, the 55, 60 inch fish, like a buck 25, um, their belly meat is like butter, man. It's, it's like oh. the fat. It is so freaking good. Like, it's out of this world good. It's not something you'd ever be able to get in a restaurant here, but it's uh, it's out of this world, man. Yeah, there's really awesome. nothing better than a tuna. I will tell you, you know, this will probably make you blush, but uh, northern northern snakeheads have exploded where I live, and it is the ugliest, nastiest. Yeah, it's an invasive species, and uh, you know, it's also the Besides the, the bluefin tuna, John just described it's the best eating fish in the world, hands down. It's better than a pompano. Really? It's unbelievable. You can't cook it wrong. It's it's just like this firm, super sweet white meat. Uh, you get a ton of filet off a decent size one. It's so long. Um, and it's an invasive species that's, you know, definitely impacting our marsh environment. Um so it's you know you kind of don't feel bad, right? Like I, I don't know what it would take for me to kill a striper right now with the with the overfish status and everything. I just I don't think I could do it until they recover. But I, I'll, I'll kill a snakehead. And the other thing we do uh, we do early uh, we do early uh, summer flounder fishing in the in the spring uh, when they're just coming in and they're coming right off the continental shelf in that cold water. And, you know, you eat that thing the same day and the, it meets like translucent. Like you could never get that in a restaurant ever. And it just it, like melts in your mouth. Like John says, just unbelievable. That's awesome. <laughs> um, snake head fish. Um, I did yeah. not, I, I did not expect that uh, to, to, to come out of your mouth, but you heard it here. Um, so, um, well, guys, uh, I want to thank you both for, for your time today. Um, I appreciate everything that American Saltwater Guides Association is doing. Uh, you certainly represent my boys um, as an angler, so thank you. Um, anyone listening, again, um, make good, go to saltwater guidesassociation.com and uh if, and, and and help make a donation uh to these guys who are out there uh fighting for, for our voice because um i certainly do appreciate it and um if there's anything that that i can do to, to help y'all y'all just let me know we appreciate the opportunity yep. thanks for tuning in to the sustainable angler podcast uh, special thanks to Tony and John from American Saltwater Guides Association. Um, also uh, to our sponsor for this episode, Turnip Flats. Um, the Sustainable Angler is available anywhere you listen to podcasts, uh, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Spotify. Um, do us a favor, give us a like, a follow, a uh, rating and review. That really um, helps the show out a lot um, so that we can continue to educate and create more awareness about uh, these environmental threats, uh, but also share these inspiring um, solutions and and stories on the show. Um, Also, we recently created a YouTube page, so um, 
or YouTube channel, I should say. Um, so if you want to subscribe to that, that'd be great. And um, thanks again for your time.